0: We were at the park. It was just Emma and me, my oldest daughter, and I was, I was pushing her in a swing. It's been several years ago now, but I still remember it well. She's 10 now. She was probably only about three or four at the time. And, and I was pushing her, and we were laughing. She was giggling. We were just enjoying the sunshine, having a great time. And uh, there was uh, an older couple next to us playing with their grandkids. And, and at one point, they asked Emma, What's your name? And Emma responds confidently and boldly, my name is Emma, my name is Annie. And they were a bit confused, you know, that's kind of odd, and what was happening was little Einstein's was big at our house in those days, and so Emma had just decided that her name was Annie, my name was Quincy, Steph's name was June, and Bree's name was Leo. Bree got the raw end of that deal, you know, the youngest one tends, that tends to happen, but... You know, it's just it's fun to be a dad with young kids because you're invited into their world. You're you're invited to see life through their eyes. And you know, for young kids, everything is new. There's a newness to life, and so it's a rush to see the uh, explore the unexplored, to to see the unseen, to try things that are always new for the very first time. You know, and it's 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 a joy to be able to just to see life through their eyes, to walk in their world. It, it, it's a world where tele, uh, 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 paper towel rolls can become telescopes, where where turkey basters can bef- become microphones, and refrigerator boxes are mansions. It's a it's a world where you can color outside the lines. It's a world where you don't even have to think outside the box because the box is so big you can't even see the walls. It's a world where you get to change your name. This morning, you know, part of the genius of the book of Ruth is it's, too, a world where you can change your name, as we'll see this morning. Part of the genius of the book of Ruth is you are invited into their world to to see it from their eyes. And so last week, if you were with us, you remember that we began the book of Ruth in the dark days of the judges. And it was the evil days, the dark days. And in these dark days, we left Naomi alone. This widow alone, she'd lost her husband, she'd lost her two boys, and there she is in a foreign country, the trash can of Moab. She and her family, this Bethlehem family, this Ephrathite family, they've left the house of bread and they've gone to Moab, the trash can, and now Naomi is there alone. And we're invited into this world, and it's a world of pain and and heartbreak and devastation, it's, it's, it's a hard world to see and to live in, and you get to see and feel the emotions in this story. We're going to pick up the story this morning, the second scene of Ruth, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. In the, in the first scene, the first five verses, the, the narrator, he highlights some key events, and he moves quickly through the first 10 years, just kind of giving us a, an idea, a little bit of the background to this story. But in this section, he almost, he screeches things almost to a halt, because this section is going to be a little bit more different than the previous section. And in, in the previous section, we were invited to get a little bit of the background, but here he's much more personable. He doesn't just tell us what the characters are doing or what they're thinking or how they're feeling. He's much more personable than that. He actually invites us in to the conversations. We get to listen as the characters talk to one another, we get to walk this dusty, dirty road from Moab to Bethlehem with these three widows. The the charm of this story is that we get to stand right beside flesh and blood, and and we get to see these women wrestling with real-life choices right in front of our eyes. We're welcomed into their world to watch what happens when a fairy tale comes true. So let's go ahead. Let's walk these steps together. We'll begin this morning... In Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, it reads, Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, "'Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go away, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying?' No, my daughters, for it is is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We begin this section, and, and, and right off the bat, there's a little hope that is injected into the heart because something different is taking place. This story is not going to end in Moab. Naomi, she's leaving Moab with her daughters-in-law, and she's returning to Bethlehem. And so there's a little hope that this story is not ending in Moab. Perhaps something good can happen. And even more than this, it says that God has provided food in Bethlehem. You remember in the first section, God is completely devoid. There's no mention of God throughout the first five verses in the first scene. But something different has happened already. God is infused into this story where he was absent before, signifying an absence of God's presence from this Bethlehem family. Now he's present. And now the house of bread, Bethlehem, it's full again. There's food. God has brought food. And so Naomi, she heads out towards Bethlehem. She's accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And I imagine that as they're walking, it's a three-day journey from Moab to Bethlehem. And as they're walking, I, I imagine that they're probably walking in silence, you know. That perhaps they're waiting for each other to, to open up and to share the first words, to break the silence. Perhaps the younger ones are taking their cues from their mother-in-law Naomi. and Naomi, she's in pain. She's in dealing with incredible hurt and loss, not just the loss of her husband, but the loss of her sons as well. It's not one loss, it's three. Her eyes are likely bloodshot from the tears her heart is heavy from the loss, you, you imagine that for these three women, they probably haven't slept well in quite some time. It's been a while since they've had a good night's sleep as they're dealing with just incredible pain. And not just the pain of the loss, there's also this concern for their future. What, what hope do they have now? How in the world will they survive in this man's world? they There was no future in Moab for Naomi. She recognized that, but even in returning to Bethlehem, what hope could she have there? What would be there for her? So they're on this journey with worry, heartbreak, pain, likely silence will mark the beginning of this three-day journey back from Moab to Bethlehem. And then Naomi Finally, she breaks the silence. They're they're a little ways down the road at this point. The custom of the day that when you were saying goodbye to someone, that you would walk with them a little bit down the road, a little ways down the road before you said goodbye. You just wouldn't say goodbye at the door. You'd, You'd take part of the journey with them, and then you'd say goodbye. It's likely that in this story, that as they're walking down the road, they've gone a little bit further than what you would normally expect for them to say goodbye. Naomi was probably expecting that at some point, Orpah and Ruth would say goodbye. But these women, perhaps they've had a conversation before and they've talked about it and they've said, how could we possibly say goodbye to this woman who's lost everything? Let's just go with her. Let's stick it out. Let's go with her. I I don't know exactly, but it could be. And Naomi, as possibly she's waiting for them to break the silence and to say goodbye, she realizes that something must be said. And so she speaks up and she says, go return each of you to your mother's house and may God deal kindly with you. May he bless you as you've been so kind to me and to my boys and And I pray that God would give you a husband there in Moab. It's interesting, you know, Naomi says, go to your mother's house, your mother's house. She doesn't say father's house, she says mother's house. This is a man's world after all, and she says mother's house because it was the mother's chambers where you prepared for a wedding, and so she's already putting this idea into these young women, go, go back, it's, you're still young, you know, you, you still have a future ahead of you, your life is not over, really your life's all still in front of you, go back to Moab and for perhaps you will make one Moabite a very lucky man, you, you need to go back to your mother's house. And as Naomi gets these difficult words out of her mouth as she's sending these two younger women away, we see one of the most tragic scenes in all of Scripture. Three widows alone on this dirty, dusty road, weeping. Their voices crying out, and they are weeping loudly. You know, I've, I've never met a family where you have three widows related by marriage and none of them. There are no surviving children or grandchildren. They're all alone and they're on this road alone, weeping, crying. It, it is a tender, heartbreaking moment because this isn't just one damsel in distress, it's three. And, and we're invited into this world and we're given a lesson on pain a lesson on suffering. How do you respond to loss, to disillusionment? What do you do when the storms of life hit? How do you react when, when you're confronted with unbelievable sorrow? Per- perhaps you can find yourself in this story. Perhaps you know the sting of sorrow. Perhaps you've had to navigate life's landmines. You, you know just what it's like to live in the valley of life, when things don't seem to go right, when the storms hit. And whether they're hitting you right now or not, we all know the fact, that, the fact is that in life, storms come, that we all experience storms in life. And at this crossroads for these three women, we're giving this incredible illustration on how to respond to life's difficulties. We see three responses. First, I want to look at Orpah's and how Orpah responds there. The three widows, they're, they're weeping, they're crying loudly. Naomi is saying, you need to go back to your mother's house. You know, perhaps you can find a husband there. And then Orpah and Ruth, they respond in unison. This is why I think perhaps they've talked about it ahead of time. And they say, no, we're going with you to your people. And Naomi, she responds again and she says, no, 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 you need to go back. Go back to Moab. I have nothing for you. I'm too old to get married, and even if I were to get married this very night and bear a son and get pregnant tomorrow, what are you going to do? Wait until he grows up? You'd be too old for him by then. I have nothing to offer you. You need to go back to Moab. See, implicit in what Naomi is saying is that, hey, you have no prospect for a husband in Judah, that there's not going to be any good Israelite man who's going to want to marry a Moabite widow. Okay, You have no hope for a husband in Israel. The only hope you would have is me, and I, I can't give you a son who would marry you. The only hope you have for a future, the only hope, the only prospect you have for a man who will take care of you is to go back to Moab. And the reality of Naomi's words sink in. I mean, these three women, they weep all over again. Their voices cry out all over again. And we see Orpah's response. She kisses Naomi. And that's it. I mean, she can't even bear to utter any words. This moment is too heartbreaking. It's too difficult. She can't say anything. She just weeps, kisses her mother-in-law, and then she walks away. Because Orpah, she knew the reality of the situation. She knew that in going to Bethlehem and going to Judah, that she would be forfeiting everything. She would be giving up the prospect of finding a husband. She knew it would be next to nothing. She knew that she would be unwanted in this Jewish community. She knew that she would be leaving everything familiar to her, that she would be forfeiting her rights as a citizen she would have no promises, no prospects. Life would be extremely difficult in Bethlehem. She understood this. And Orpah, her response illustrates how people often respond to life's difficulties. And it's faithless pragmatism. And it leads nowhere. Faithless pragmatism, which leads nowhere. This is how Orpah responds. See, at this crossroads in Orpa's life... She stopped, she counted the cost, and she said, you're right, Naomi, the the future doesn't look good there. I I would have no hope there. And she heads back to Moab. It was a hard decision, for sure. I mean, she cried real crocodile tears. Her, Her pain and her grief, they were real. But when it came right down to it, She would simply make the pragmatic choice to go and to return to the godless Moab. And yeah, it seems practical. I mean, anybody reading this story, they they look at it and say, well, that seems like the practical thing to do, maybe the wise thing to do, the logical thing to do. But as you're reading it, you also know that that, that's going to be it for Orpah. She will disappear back over the horizon as she walks to Moab, never to be heard from again. Perhaps she met a good Moabite man, I don't know. But what I do know is that her faithless pragmatism ultimately left her nowhere. See Her life, it's it's reminiscent of the rich young ruler. You remember him centuries later who would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what, what must I do to be your disciple? And Jesus says, you got to keep the commandments. He says, oh, I've done that. I've kept all of them. Anything else, what must I do to be your disciple? He says, go, sell everything that you have, give, give to the poor, then come, follow me. And the rich young ruler, just like Orpah, he goes away sad because he says, I can't do that. I can't just give up everything I've got. These are my possessions. This is what I'm holding on to. See, he thought he owned this stuff. And he valued what he owned as greater worth, as greater significance, rather than being owned by the God of the universe. See, maybe you're there too. See, sometimes when we calculate the cost for how to live our life or for what we ought to do, we we operate with faithless pragmatism as well. Because sometimes we look and we say, you know, I know the Bible says that I should go out and I should share my faith with others, that I should be salt, I should be light. But that's not really my gift, you know? I'm just not that kind of a person. I don't know how to start conversations. I don't know how to share the gospel. That's not really me. Maybe you know that, hey, it's important that I live life according to scripture. But when it comes right down to it, and, you know, there's a disagreement with somebody, I feel wrong by somebody, rather than just going to that person and having a conversation the way that Scripture tells me to do. Instead, you know, it, it kind of makes sense that I get on the phone and I call a few people, and I, and I rally some support for me and for my cause and what I think is right, so that I've got some people behind me to encourage me. See, we can justify all kinds of things. We can have all kinds of faithless pragmatism, which tells us that this is the right way to live life. But it ultimately leads nowhere see i am convinced based on the testimony of scripture that you have done nothing from an eternal of any eternal significance until you have impacted the life of someone else for jesus until so you have discipled someone and you've shown someone and you know, hey, as an older believer and who's someone who's walked with Jesus for a long time, that it's my responsibility to grab someone younger next to me and show them, hey, this is how I read the Bible. This is how I pray. This is how I witness. This is how I encourage. This is what I do. This is what it looks like to live a life committed to Jesus. Until I get to a place where I realize, okay, I'm going to share my faith. Until I get to a place where I can impact someone else for the cause of Christ, I've done nothing of any type of eternal significance. This is the only place that leads somewhere. Faithless pragmatism ultimately leads nowhere because it's only concerned with me, myself, and I. This is Orpah. This is the rich young ruler. Faithless pragmatism, it leads nowhere. I want to look at another response. Let's look at Naomi's response to life's challenges, to life's difficulties. To do that, we need to finish out the scene here, verses 15 through 22. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi's response to this situation, it reveals the circumstantial faith which just feeds the emotions. It's a, it's a circumstantial faith which feeds the emotions. It's, it's another response to life's difficulties, and, and it, responds, it, it characterizes Naomi to a T, really. I mean, you, you hear her in this scene. She begins it, and she says, hey, she pronounces this blessing. She, she says, hey, God, uh, may, he be, uh, may he deal kindly with you because you've dealt so well to me. And then she goes on as she continues to speak and she continues to talk about God and what these women ought to do. Four times you'll see it as you just peel back the layers of this self-pity. And what you do is you see a woman who is living life based on her circumstances. And because of her circumstances, she feels unworthy of love. You see it in in the passage, don't you? She's convinced herself That God doesn't love her. And after all, I mean, if God loved her, he certainly wouldn't have left her like this. If God loved Naomi, her life certainly would have turned out better than this. She would not have lost her husband and her two boys. I mean, she just tells herself and she's telling them, look how God has dealt so bitterly with me. Look how he's been so unkind to me. Look how the hand of God has been against me. You hear Naomi, she's blaming God for everything. She says, God, God made this happen. God did this to me. He's the author of my story. You can hear her, can't you? And implicit in all these words, she's saying, God doesn't even love me, so why should you? So the, the emotions they come pouring out as she speaks. To Ruth. Orpah's left now, Orpah's return, and, and, and she's walking away and she looks at Ruth and she says, Look, Orpah's returned to her people and to her gods, you should do the same. And that stops us in our tracks because Naomi, this, this, this woman from Bethlehem, she's telling this young woman to go back to her foreign, false. Man-made gods in Moab, just like Orpah has done. You hear her say, hey, my God has dealt so bitterly with me, perhaps your gods will treat you better. Go back to your gods just like Orpah did. Go back to the pagan false gods of the Moabites. You know how it is when you get emotional and you just start talking and you don't even realize what it is that's coming out of your mouth? I imagine that's what's happening with Naomi here. I doubt she even considered what it was she was suggesting. Because to go back to the Moabite gods, I mean, these people, they created all these false gods. Their chief god, his name was Shemosh. And, And one of the primary ways that you worship this god, false god, Shemosh, was to offer human child sacrifices to him. And she's saying, Go back to this? And there's all these other false gods, and you would do all kinds of atrocities, and you would call it worship. That this was the type of worship that she's sending Ruth and Orpah back to? To return to these gods and to these people? See, see Naomi, she demonstrates that her circumstantial faith that just fed her emotions. And she's just spitting stuff out of her mouth. Then she gets to Bethlehem, and the women come out, and they greet her. And they say, Naomi, is that you? It's been a long time. Is that you, Naomi? Naomi says, don't don't call me that. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. She says, there's nothing about my life that's pleasant. Everything about my life is bad. Just call me bitter. God has taken me to the graveyard three times. There, there's nothing pleasant about my life. Call me bitter. And she makes this very interesting statement. She says, when I, you know, when I left here, I left Bethlehem full, but I've come back empty. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we remember the scene, the opening scene, and, the, and they left, and there's a famine in the land. Their stomachs are, are empty. They, they go to Moab in search of greener grass. They want a better life. They want something more for their family. But now she's saying, hey, when I left Bethlehem, I left full. And I've come back empty. See, when we're in pain, we have this tendency sometimes to magnify what we don't have and to minimize what we do have. Naomi, as she's leaving Bethlehem, I'm sure she wasn't thinking about her husband and her two boys who she has going with her. But now that she's come back, she says, like, "I've lost everything of any of any worth in my life, everything of any value. I've got nothing left." And as she's saying this, as she's saying, "I'm empty. I've got nothing." Standing right beside her is this young Moabite woman who's left everything to be with her, and she's saying, "I'm empty." I've got nothing. See, never once in this story do you hear Naomi repent and say, You know, I was wrong. You know, I I sinned against God. I should have never left Bethlehem. I didn't act the way that I was supposed to. I, I should have led the people to repentance and to trust the one true God. And you may say, Well, it's a man's world. How was she supposed to do that? Deborah did. You go and you look in the book of Judges, and Deborah stood up, and she was one of the greatest leaders in the whole time. Naomi did nothing. She she never repented and said, I I didn't train my boys the way that I should have. I I just patted them on the back when they sinned. I've acted wrongly. She doesn't do any of that. There's, There's no repentance. There's no heartbreak over her sin. She simply looks at her circumstances. She sees the worst, and she blames God. She has this circumstantial faith which feeds the emotions. And if we're not careful, we can end up in the same spot. That we can look at the circumstances of our life and maybe, maybe it's different than Naomi. Maybe when things are going good, we just kind of coast along and we act as if we don't really need God. That everything's fine. I've, I've got life okay on my own. And maybe it's when the storms hit that at that point you get desperate and you say, now I need God. I don't know. Or maybe it's just like Naomi, and when the storms hit, you say, God, why have you done this to me? Why have you acted like this to me? You've caused this. It's your fault. Why don't you love me more? See, we we can look at circumstances, and sometimes we can reinvent this new God, like a God of karma. And we can say, well, there must be some sin as to why my life is doing this. I must have done something wrong for God to do this to me. Our God is so much bigger than a God of karma. See, while we were yet sinners, God sent his son to die on the cross for us. He didn't wait till we were good enough because we never would have been. He sent his son while we were enemies of him. This is not a God of karma. He's much bigger and much better than that. And Paul will tell us how God's love never stops, that it keeps on going And so we get to trust in this big, amazing God whose love continues and will never, ever separate from us. But Naomi, she misses the blessings of all that right now because she's got this circumstantial faith and she can't see past her circumstances. And she's convinced herself God doesn't love me, I'm completely unworthy of love. You ladies don't need to love me either. Her emotions are just being fed. Another response to life's difficulties is the example that Ruth provides. Orpah kisses Naomi and leaves, but Ruth clung to her. She wouldn't let go. She just wraps her arms around her. She gives us this big bear hug, and she's not letting go. Naomi, she pleads with her. She says, just, just see, what, see what your sister-in-law, see what Orpah is doing. You should just leave. Go back to your people, to your gods. But Ruth, she clings and she hugs tighter. She's not going anywhere, and then... Ruth gives one of the greatest declarations of faith in all the Bible. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. See, Ruth is determined She's following Naomi no matter what. She's going with her. She's staying with her. She she says, I will become an Israelite. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Literally, the name Yahweh leaves the lips of this Moabite woman. And now she's committed herself. I mean, you see in this scene that Ruth is committing herself to the fate of an old widow as opposed to the pursuit of a new husband. This is unheard of. This is unimaginable. This is unthinkable. I mean, the story was incredible enough. I mean, during these dark days and all the evil and the sorrow that these women have experienced. But this here is even more amazing than that. That she would commit herself to this. And now, we learn faith in this book. Not from some family, some Ephrathite family in Bethlehem. We learn faith from a foreign immigrant woman named Ruth. And Ruth responds to life's problems with purposeful faith, which which trusts God's faithfulness. She exhibits this purposeful faith, which trusts in God's faithfulness. See, the fact of the matter is that Malan and Kilian, when they married Moabite women, it was wrong. I mean, make no mistake about it. It was an act of disobedience. But please don't miss this. God can turn all things for good. And God reached into the heart of this young Moabite woman, not because of the obedience of Elimelech, not because of the obedience of Mahlon and Kilion, not because of the encouragement and the testimony of Naomi. I mean, you listen to Naomi's words. This is not your poster family for evangelism. And yet, despite their disobedience, despite their unrepentance, despite their lack of faith, Ruth emerges with this purposeful faith that's given to her by God and God alone. See, Ruth knew what she'd be giving up. She she knew, just like Orpah, she knew. I'm giving up my family. I'm giving up my nation. I'm, I'm giving up the hope for a husband. I'm giving up my security. She knew. She's clinging to this old widow in a foreign land, a new people, and she also knows that she's clinging to probable death. She said it. She said, where you die, I will die. See, this is on her mind because this would be a likely outcome in this world. Given these circumstances, this is likely where life will lead, but she says, I, that's better That's of more value to me than going back to Moab to try to find a husband there. See, Ruth, this foreign woman, this foreign immigrant woman, she has this newfound faith that led her to trust something that Elimelech's family could never quite grasp. That The the fact is that a famine in the will of God is sweeter than a feast apart from God. And she got that. Even in her newfound faith, she realized that that. And the faith of this foreign woman from godless Moab surpasses the faith from this founding Ephrathite family in Bethlehem. It's incredible. And Ruth, now she's in Bethlehem, standing beside her bitter mother-in-law who comes across completely uncaring in this scene. As Naomi speaks and she says, I've come back empty and you look at the story and you see even though she's bitter and, and, and even though it's hard we left Naomi alone last week but she doesn't seem alone now she's at least back in Bethlehem with her people the women of the town have gathered around her and they, they recognize her that's you isn't it Naomi they re- so Naomi doesn't seem quite alone anymore but she says I'm I'm empty And standing right beside her is Ruth. And now it's Ruth who seems alone. There's just one monumental difference, though, between the first scene where Naomi was alone and this scene with Ruth. And the the difference is that the sovereign God of the universe is working behind the scenes to demonstrate his love to this young Moabitess, to give her confidence and purpose and determination, even in these difficult circumstances. And so we were welcomed into their world to see this difficult place, to see a time where that's full of tears and pain and disillusionment and sorrow, but we're invited to see how to respond to life's problems. We we see the three options. I mean, you can respond with faithless pragmatism, it will lead nowhere. You can just look at life based on your circumstances and have this circumstantial faith which simply feeds the emotions or you can have a purposeful faith which trusts God always because of his faithfulness. Because of this foreign immigrant woman Ruth and how she responds with this purposeful faith there is this faint ray of sunshine that perhaps the characters themselves haven't even realized yet in this book that the fate of Ruth and Naomi, they're not as bleak as they once appeared. They're in Bethlehem, and it's the barley harvest now. And more importantly, Ruth has declared that God is enough. And so the seeds of redemption have sprung new life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love toward us, for your goodness toward us, That, God, you never separate your love from us, even when we do our best to separate ourselves from you. Yeah, we thank you that you are a a faithful God. Lord, and in the midst of life's difficulties and storms of life, they hit all of us at one time or another. Yeah, we thank you for the example of Ruth, an example of purposeful faith. Who determines to trust your faithfulness, your goodness, your, your care, no matter what. God, may we live life with that type of confidence. This unwavering confidence, commitment to your word. Because we know you and we know your love for us. And we know what you say about us and who you've called us to be. So help us live it well this week. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.